0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. And on today's show, we're here for the love of transmission arts, which is when artists use the radio as their medium, not just uh, broadcasting sound, but the whole idea of what a radio, of how radio exists in our world becomes. Well, instead of me trying to define transmission art on today's show, let's just jump right into the interview with Amanda Dawn Christie, uh, produced today by Jennifer Waits.
1: Today we're speaking with Amanda Don Christie, Assistant Professor of Studio Arts at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada, and a transmission artist. And Amanda, you were recently in Alaska doing a transmission art piece called Ghosts in the Airglow, and I wanted to learn more about what initially tra- attracted you to transmission arts and, and radio generally.
2: Okay, well, um, it all started in kind of a weird uh, uh, spot. So my background uh, is interdisciplinary. I work with uh, film, contemporary dance, experimental sound. And back in, I guess it would be 2009, I built my first radio receiver. It was just like a foxhole radio with some wire wrapped around a toilet paper tube that I built in a workshop. in a town called Sackville, New Brunswick. It's a small town of uh, about 3,000 people. And my radio picked up Italian radio. No way. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought I did a great job. I was like, wow, I did fantastic. And it turned out I did not do a great job. I just happened to be next to a, a very large international shortwave radio station, the Radio Canada International Shortwave Towers. Which broadcast all around the world to um, Europe, Africa, Australia, the Arctic, South America, and so I was really close to them. And then I found out that some people in the area uh, heard if they had copper pipes in their house, the pipe would act as an antenna, and they would hear the radio in their sink. Wow! And yeah, so I was jealous because I didn't have a radio sink, and you can't just go buy a Sony sinkman. So I decided to try and make my own radio sync and I, um, every paycheck, you know, I didn't have any special funding. Like some people smoke, some people have cable TV. My disposable income went to copper plumbing pipe. Every paycheck, I'd go and buy another 12 feet of pipe. And I just transferred the schematic of a foxhole radio into uh, plumbing. And it was called the Marshland Radio Plumbing Project. and. I would take my sink out on the marsh and try to hear the radio. That in is my hilarious. Sink. <laughs> yeah, and it all kind of snowballed from there. Yeah. Did, so that was the beginning. Did it work? No. <laughs> but um, I was told that it would work. Um, I was about forty meters short of pipe, which is very expensive. Uh, but what wound up happening was so it became a photo project and a performance and failure. Um, and a site-specific sculpture. I've exhibited the sink as a sculpture in art galleries, um, with soundtracks playing inside the pipes coming out of the sink. Mm-hmm. And so, what
1: would How happen? How big is, is the sink?
2: Uh, well, it can always. It, it's modular, so it could be configured in different ways. Every time I set it up, I do something different. It can. It can be up to about uh, twenty-four feet long. Oh wow! Um, yeah, yeah. So it. Um, when I uh, what would happen would be I, I took it to like a, an agricultural fair in Sackville and met some farmers and locals in the community. And it was a real and there was an article in the newspaper, local artist tries to hear radio in kitchen sink. So it's a small enough town that when I would um, go to get groceries or go to the cafe, strangers would stop me and say, so have you heard the radio in your sink yet? And I'd be like, oh, uh, no. And they'd say, let me tell you, we used to hear it in our fridge or we would hear it on the radiator. And people just started sharing stories with me. And so then I started carrying a sound recorder and gathering these stories. And so the sink became a point of departure where it was a conversation piece that sparked other people to tell stories. And so then I realized that the radio towers in the landscape, there were just so beautiful that I wanted to film them. So I wanted to do this landscape film spread over the course of a year, spring, summer, fall, winter all different weather conditions, seasons, and I was going to pair them with these stories. And then I got to meet the uh, technicians who worked at the radio site. I, I went for a tour and then I discovered that after 9pm there was only one person on duty and they're usually bored, so sometimes I would go after 9, just show up, and if, there was, if things were going smoothly they'd make a pot of coffee, we'd go to the kitchen, get out a topographical map and look at, and they saw my schematic and they're like, yeah, this sink should definitely work. You just need more pipe. They gave me their broadcast schedules. We looked at the azimuths to figure out where in the marsh at what time of day I should be to catch which broadcasts. We had to make sure that they were analog broadcast and not digital radio. Cause my sink wasn't a digital sink. It was a <laughs>
0: <laughs> analog kitchen sink. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it was an analog radio sync. It wasn't one of the new fancy digital radio syncs. It was, uh, yeah. So, so yeah. So I started building up relationships with the community as a through um, the project with my sync, and getting stories, and then started visiting the site and started learning a lot more about radio and shortwave radios. And uh, yeah, so that's where it all began.
1: And. And I know on another project, you you did something with a clothesline because you'd heard stories about people hearing the radio on a clothesline. I was intrigued by that too. Could you explain what was going on there? Yeah. So that also,
2: that was one of the stories that someone in Sackville had shared was that there was, uh, there were two farms that were very close when they first built the towers. And there was one family when they would send the clothesline, when it was rolling, uh, when the, you know, the line was rolling on the wheel, you would hear the radio. And when it stopped, you wouldn't. <gasps> and... Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And they were, they they eventually CBC bought these two farms and um, cleared the land because these people were living dangerously close. Like light bulbs would sometimes turn on, like when they started broadcasting towards Africa, the lights would just start to glow. Uh, They wouldn't come on all the way just to a little glow and then they would go out. Yeah. And I think that there was this, uh, so I was interested in this kind of, um, idea that of people being unintentional witnesses, you're hearing radio broadcasts in other languages not meant for you. Like the people who heard it in their fridge could control the volume by opening and closing the door. And it was only certain times of the day, like only when they broadcast a certain direction. So it wasn't constant. Mm. And the way they, they would describe it, it's like, you can't really make out what they're saying. Like it's clearly voices, but you can't make out what they're saying. So it's like there's someone in your basement. So you come home from school, and it's like you hear someone talking in the basement. You know it's just the radio in the pipes, but you still have to go and check and make sure you're alone. Yeah. So that's this kind of creepy feeling.
0: Ghost story. And again, yeah. the the reality is that there was a shortwave radio station broadcasting internationally, very powerful. Um, what yeah. what was the station again? Like what was the Radi- content? It
2: was it's uh it was Radio Canada International. And so it was Canada's only high-power shortwave relay site, and so they broadcast um, Canadian radio. But it was so powerful, and it was it was situated because radio ricochets between the ocean and the ionosphere, kind of circles the world like a ping pong ball, uh, not ping pong, a uh, pinball, like a pinball machine. You know, like it, the radio waves bounce back and forth between the surface of the planet and the ionosphere, and it goes better over water. So Sackville was located; it's by the ocean. So it's the perfect place for reaching Europe and North Africa. So um, that site, which was built in the late 30s and became active in the early 40s, uh, was activated during World War II, and it was very strategic during the Cold War. Like, they actually broadcast radio Free Europe. Um, They were the first Allied site to break the jamming signals during the Cold War uh, to cross the Iron Curtain. Um, By the time I was making my film, they were contracted out so they it belonged to Radio Canada International. They broadcast Radio Canada International, but they were also subcontracted by um, to, to relay transmissions for Voice of Vietnam, Radio China, Radio Japan. Um, is it Japan, China, Korea, Vietnam? Wow. Vatican, Vatican Radio. So basically, all sorts of other countries were using this site.
1: Oh, interesting. And this is
0: because shortwave radio for our listeners is um, much more of a powerful medium than, than the FM or even AM that we might be used to. You can really hear it uh, with a strong signal that, uh, you know, a strong signal supported by a government. You can hear it around the world and on a yep. shortwave radio if you have shortwave, which was much more common, maybe, especially when they built the thing in, in the first half of the 20th century.
2: Well, yeah, and it's still, unfortunately, they're starting to tear the sites down now, which is a shame, um, because there's still, the thing with shortwave is that um, it's in real time, like anything that's live on the internet always has like a 45-second delay. It's mandated by governments Mm. so that if something bad happens, they can stop it, whereas shortwave is real time, because radio travels at the speed of light, and it's also really accessible. You You can't really block it. You can kind of jam it with the right equipment, but really... Um, So what happens is you have the internet like in countries like China or other authoritarian regimes where they censor the internet, but shortwave gets through from other countries. So when you listen to international shortwave radio, you can hear the news from different perspectives of different countries. And there's a charity in the United States called, uh, I think it's called Ears to Our World, and they send shortwave radios to third world countries under authoritarian regimes so that people can access... um, uh, international news and information. And, and it's not like a computer, right? Like it's much more accessible. You can get a cheap $20 radio. Right. And it's also, um,
0: you can't, you can't be tracked. You know, when you turn on a radio, that is a private act and there's no, there's no, uh, there's no trail to be followed by, by an authoritarian government spying on you. A radio is private.
2: Exactly. And, and you can access it in the, in the jungle, in the desert, in remote areas. So yeah. think of all the places where you don't get cell phone service or you don't have an internet connection. Well, you can still pick up radio. And yet we have all these governments tearing down these radio sites under the assumption that everyone has the internet. But we know that that's, that's a really privileged point of view. It's not true. Not everyone has access to the internet. And so when we dismantle these international shortwave sites, we are in effect uh, depriving access to you know international uh, sources of information.
1: So when did Radio
2: Canada cease? They announced they were decommissioning the site in July 2012, and the last transmission the last Canadian transmission overseas was July of 2012, and the last transmission up to the Arctic was in November of 2012.
1: So it must be so sad for you since this this really sparked your interest in radio, you know, hearing broadcasts from Radio Canada International and, and to have it disappear, what was that like for you? Well, for me, it was also
2: more than just because that site, the significance was more than just listening because I grew up in that area. I mean, the it was 30, I was 30 before I realized what they were doing. It was part a landmark because it's a flat marshland landscape and these towers are like, 40-story tall buildings. The towers are, was it 113 meters? So that's like a, over 400 feet tall. So you've got 13, 400-foot tall towers on this below sea level saltwater marsh. And at night, they have these red lights and they light up. So it's this really iconic landmark. And growing up, I just thought, oh, every town has one of these. I didn't realize how unique it was or what it did. And many locals in Sackville as well, for them, it was a landmark that When you're driving home from a long trip, you can see them in the distance and you know you're almost home. So there was a real sense of of home and landmark in the towers. So they were, for me, they were probably as important or if not more important as a landmark, which is interesting because not being an international listener, many Canadians didn't even know that this service existed. Like it was really for international audiences. Mm. So... For me, what happened was I was then I'd gotten funding to do this film that I had this idea of when I was doing the sink. And I was filming it in uh, different weather conditions, different seasons. That was when the laundry line came up. As I was filming, at one point, there was a big sinkhole in the ground behind it. And one day, uh, every time I went, like I almost drove my car into this hole and then someone else like put a, a stick in it. So you'd like every time you go, different people put things so you'd be aware of this hole because it was just a public access road for farmers. And, uh, I, I see this hole and, and, and someone had put two mounds of dirt on either side and two posts. And I saw the posts and I thought that just needs a clothesline. So it started off as kind of a goofy idea. I went to a hardware store, bought a clothesline and some clothes and hung it up over the hole in, my, in a, in a futile attempt to domesticate this abyss. And, uh, it was only later that I realized, oh yeah, the parallel with the lady who heard the lo- uh, radio on her clothesline. Yeah. But so that's how so basically that clothesline project was just started off as something to amuse myself when I was out there alone. Uh, wow. And, and, no, and I just took photos with my iPhone and eventually no one ever took it down. It was up for a whole wow. year. And so then eventually as the clothes were getting tattered, I thought, OK, this is this is a thing. I should use a better camera. So then I did more um, uh, proper documentation. And after I started doing the film, that was when they announced they were tearing the site down. So I started the film without knowing it was going to be torn down. And so basically the final chapter of my film, I wound up documenting the demolition. I was the only person on site when it was demolished. And so my film kind of goes spring, summer, fall, winter. And in the winter, you don't hear any speaking. You just watch it be, you have uh, about 25 minutes to just witness the demolition of this site.
0: Amanda Dawn Christie, assistant professor of studio arts at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. What's the title of your experimental documentary about this uh, uh shortwave radio tower for can uh, for radio canada international
2: it's called specters of shortwave ombre des Ondes Courtes.
0: and uh i have to ask before we move on did you ever have uh, a radio uh you know engineer a scientist explain to you why the clothesline picked up the shortwave radio when it was spinning but not when it was uh oh. not in motion <laughs> that's fascinating. well
2: i did i I did a fair bit of research on my own um i uh, it's called uh, external rectification or the rusty bolt effect um and this is more applying to how things like sinks and fridges play the radio it's when you have two different types of metal touching each other mm. um with a, se- a semiconductor in between that is essentially a diode right and so that's the one missing part in a foxhole that's the only electric electronic component in a foxhole radio is a diode and so you just need Two different conductive materials with a semiconductor in between. So in the case of a sink, you have two pipes and a poorly soldered joint. In the case of the the rotating clothesline, it's that it's as it spins, you get the little bits of air between the the wire and the wheel Mm -hmm. that Ah. that happen. Yeah.
0: Amazing. And that's why you could hear the shortwave radio on a clothesline or on a sink.
2: Or in the fridge, yeah.
1: So you had You've had some installation pieces connected with various projects, and, and didn't you have one where you actually utilized parts of the towers that were torn down?
2: Yeah, so during the demolition, um, I scavenged pieces of the site, Um, I wasn't allowed to tell anyone I was filming at the time or post anything on social media because there was so much scrap metal and they were afraid people would steal stuff. But I did ask, there were some pieces on the ground and I said, what are those for? And they said, those are for repairs. I was like, well, you're not repairing anything now, are you? (laughs) And they were like, no, do you want some? I was like, yeah. So I got three pieces of the towers that, or no, six, I got six pieces that are about two to 300 pounds each, 10 feet long. (laughs) And... They're, yeah, there's, and the thing is, those aren't actual pieces of the towers themselves. Those are, they're like cell phone towers that they use. They're called spreaders. So these radio towers are so big. The antennas are the copper wires between them. And they use pieces of cell phone towers suspended horizontally between the wires to space them out. Oh, so these were, wow. but they look like, but I mean, they're the size of cell phone towers. So I had six of these pieces and I hang them from the ceiling, of it. so it requires, I've only exhibited it twice, because it requires a big gallery space um, with a 20-foot ceiling that can support the weight, um, because I suspend them from aircraft ceiling, cable from the ceiling. Uh, the piece is called, uh, specters of shortwave, uh, radio towers like wind chimes. So I hang the pieces of radio towers like wind chimes. So they look delicate, and yet it's very heavy and ominous and industrial. And in one manifestation of the installation, I had a rear projection video suspended in the middle, and in another one, I had six a six channel sound, um, so six speakers floating around playing contact microphone recordings of the towers.
0: Mm, so not so not broadcast, not radio broadcast, but just what the towers themselves uh, sound like in the in the air, in the sky, connected between the earth and the sky.
2: Yeah, exactly, because they're you know they're four hundred feet tall, and the marshes that... Yeah, they're made of metal and the the that marsh, because it's like between two large bodies of water, uh, the winds get extremely high. So they're like giant guitar strings in the wind. So you couldn't hear the sounds with, your, with the naked ear, but using contact microphones, it's like a doctor listening with a stethoscope to a heartbeat. Um, each tower had its own co- sound. To me, they became like voices. I felt like I was hearing the voices of the towers. So it was really, um, I really felt like I was listening to the heartbeat their heartbeat to listening to the inside and so what happened was uh i i filmed between the time i finished filming and waiting for the demolition it was a two-year waiting period where i could have finished the film but i thought no that would be terrible to finish it and then have it demolished like a month later so i kept waiting and in that waiting period i was done i I was shooting everything on 35 millimeter film which is expensive so and beautiful um, yeah, it's gorgeous. Yeah, I shot mostly. Yeah, I've I've got my own 35 millimeter Arri BL4. It's uh, yeah. Her name's Pirate Bonnie Lou the Fourth. I love my camera. Oh, nice. Uh, sorry. <laughs> sorry tangent there, but um, yeah. So the I had this two year window, and so what I did with that was I did sound recording, and I would actually camp next to the site, and I had homemade contact microphones. And I would record um, all the towers, and so I built up this library of of contact microphone recordings of these drones. And there's 13 towers. Right. And, and when then, you say
0: drones, you mean the 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 droning of audio, not a not a flying machine.
2: Yes, like, exactly. Sorry, for, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just for so, 2019's sake. That's right. I keep forgetting. Yeah. So it's like these vibrating towers, and they're very haunting. And you get some mechanical sounds, like where wires will bang. Um, and so I used. And I actually got my climbing certification. I climbed two of the towers to record at the top. Oh my! The top sounds yeah. The top sounds the same as the bottom, so I only did two of them. But um, the so I used the soundtrack of the film throughout it. The background sound is all those contact microphone recordings. But at the in the demolition scene of the film, what I did was. There's 13 towers, and there's 13 notes in a chromatic scale if you go from tonic to tonic, so like C, C C-sharp, D, D D-sharp, E, F. So I took each tower's recording and then used a hum remover backwards to zero in on a fundamental frequency and all the subharmonics and ultraharmonics so that they became like musical notes. And during the demolition scene, every time a tower falls, I remove its voice from the soundtrack, So it starts... Yeah, so it starts off, it's 25 minutes for the demolition stream scene, and it starts off like this very um, um, dynamic, haunting choir, and every time a radio tower falls, uh, first its voice is amplified, like a dying breath, and then removed, so by the end you're down to just one last voice, or haunting sound from a tower. And so that's how that was made, and um, and then that led to the next. Like then I just started working with those recordings
1: as um, musical elements. That's amazing. I I love that your work is so multifaceted, where you have these audio works, and then the you know installations and in galleries. It's just it's sort of a radio radio nerd <laughs> artist dream.
2: Yeah, I'm definitely a radio nerd. <laughs>
1: So from, from there, Amanda Don Christie, you also did another project, Requiem for Radio, and, and there, it seems like there are a lot of common themes. You've been talking about ghosts and specters and, and mm-hmm. death. So what was Requiem for radio?
2: Yeah. Well, and it's funny just about the, the specters and ghosts. And at first, I really wanted to avoid any reference to the paranormal. And someone said about the title of the film, Specters of Shortwave, they're like, oh, you're dealing with the paranormal. And I was like, no, I was, I was referencing specters, Derrida's specters of Marx. <laughs> and they're like, but you know that people think that the souls of the dead live in the AM bandwidth of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? I was like, what? No, I had not and heard that like, one. Really? Yeah, so it turned well. It's basically uh, in the late 1800s. The spiritualist, when radio was being discovered, mm, yeah, of the spiritual the spiritualists believed that the souls of the dead lived in the um, in radio waves, and so that's where you have all these mediums and seances, and hence the the trope in horror movies today, when you know there's like a a ghost or something, and the television static goes all wonky, or the radio goes wonky. That all harkens back to the spiritualists of the 1800s and the idea that, you know, you have matter and energy can't be created or destroyed. So when matter, when someone dies, the energy that's the spirit, energy is in the electromagnetic spectrum. So I was like, initially, I was very much opposed to my work being read that way. I was Mm -hmm. like, no way. I do not want to go there. But it seems a bit inevitable, so now I try to kind of play with it. Yeah, there's and, there's uh, a lot of I try to own
0: it. There's a lot of folklore, existing folklore around all sorts of, you know, basically every electronic technology, uh, as it as it was introduced, seemed to inspire the the notion that it was connected somehow to the afterlife and to the dead. And you can find uh, ghost stories or songs about using the radio to talk to your dead relatives or, or calling them on the phone. Um, I'm sure now at this very instant, there's some kind of creepy pasta, which is the internet version of of these folklores that that connects the internet to the dead. so it it, yeah. it keeps coming back. so radio yeah, radio sure. and the voices of the dead would be would be an obvious um trope <laughs> if if you're if you're, yeah. you're going to tell a story, if you're going to tell a ghost story,
2: mm-hmm. yeah, and so then, yeah, so when you mention the dead, that's where the requiem comes from. So requiem for radio was again still about the radio canada the rci towers um so specters of shortwave was meant to be a documentary when they were still standing but it happened to document them coming down but then i had this throughout the making of specters of shortwave each tower i don't know if it was just that i went a little um loopy from working so long and hard alone um but i eventually anthropomorphized the towers each one really seemed to have its own personality like i I tried to do these photographs in, normally people do landscape photos of the entire array on the landscape. I did some portraits of each of them to try and honor each individual tower. And then I had their contact microphone recordings. And then I had this image in my head of, you know, sometimes when someone dies and their numbers in your phone book and you forget, you'd go to call them and then you, and it's really painful. So I had this image of these radio transmission sites around the world calling out to the radio canada site after it was gone oh. and yeah so i um so requiem for radio had multiple parts and one part was this composition uh, a five channel composition where i bought airtime on five stations around the world and i recorded a choir singing a, the curie from a requiem five voices a soprano and alto two tenors and a bass And I commissioned a composer uh, that I collaborate with a lot, my friend Lucas Pierce, to compose a work with that recording and to take the the Latin requiem, uh, Mass for the Dead, William Byrd's Mass for Five Voices, and converted the Latin to Morse code, used my contact. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Because, you know, Morse code is used a lot in shortwave radio. Yeah. And then my contact microphone recordings of the towers, um, the pitch shifted ones. Became the melody of the requiem. So the melodies played out in the contact microphones. The text, the Latin text, is in Morse code, and then the choir. Each voice is on a separate channel, and then the um, and then we integrated number stations as well. Oh, those, my those, favorite. Yeah, yeah. the
1: spy channels.
0: Jennifer, tell tell the listeners what number stations are.
1: Uh, well, I think Amanda just did spy. You know that that spies have have read no uh numbers over shortwave radio and then it's secret code that gets decoded by by someone else but you might run across a station where there's just somebody reciting a bunch of numbers and to me it sounds very spooky
0: yeah it's very very cold war i think you know they, they dramatized it in the television show lost i realized even though i don't know if they ever um you know made that Actual connection in the plot of the show, but numbers being recited over the airwaves um, to communicate secret messages between agents in one country and their their handlers in another country. Very, and they, they're still out there on on shortwave radio. We've we had an episode on with Thomas Witherspoon who loves shortwave radio on Radio Survivor where we talked about number stations.
2: Yeah, they're yeah, they're, and and no one's really claimed ownership of them, right. which is interesting. So yeah, so we had all these elements in this piece and it would be like a surround sound piece meant for five speakers, but instead of five speakers, I put five radios in the theater and an antenna on the roof and had um, each kind of piece. So each channel could sound complete on its own if you tuned into it, but if you had all five channels, you get the full choir. So it was um, Germany, Austria, uh, Miami, Monticello, and Pirate Radio Boston all transmitted towards where the RCI towers were to complete that
0: and so you had um, you had radios tuning in each signal simultaneously to to make the piece?
2: Yeah. Oh. But the thing was that what was interesting is that was actually just a smaller part of this larger performance. Um, yeah, I should have started with that last. sorry. I That's started with okay. that last I should yeah. No, I'm so yeah,
0: getting my head around it.
2: Well, Requiem for Radio actually started with um, a piece with a theremin where I wanted to conjure the ghosts of the radio towers. So I took a theremin and ran control voltage to an Arduino, to some code that triggered the contact mic recordings of the radio towers and videos of them. And the videos were those portraits. So instead of hearing the sound of the theremin, what you heard is I have 13 towers and 13 notes, so I played musically so using the theremin so my hands are in the air i'm not touching anything so it's this idea of using antennas to conjure the ghosts of antennas this idea of harkening back to the medium and the spiritualist so that's a solo performance for theremin where using my hands in the air i play their sounds that the towers once made and so that's requiem for radio pulse decay and then I built this installation, Requiem for Radio New Dead Zones, which is a scale model of that site, the 13 towers built out of plumbing to kind of reference the radio sync. And that, those, three, those 13 towers each had uh, four copper pads on them and those are capacitance sensors and each one had their own speaker. And so when you touched one of those, it triggered the contact mic recording. So if you touched tower Q, you would hear the recording of tower Q. And this installation was a, it was about 50 feet wide, 15 feet tall. And so when it was installed in public, a lot of people would touch it and it sounded like someone leaning on a keyboard because you could touch it and make sounds and interact with it. But it was too chaotic. So I wanted this performance. So I had three performers, myself and two other women. We could play it. It was like a 50 foot wide keyboard. Um, wow. So, so, this, so that became the set. So it was in a big black box theater. And we had the installation, the the scale model of the radio towers that we could touch and play notes. There was a moment with a solo on the theremin that triggered the, the sounds of the radios. There was a piece with a the cello. There's all these different little mm-hmm. movements within it, but yeah. that five channel radio broadcast was the opening and the closing. So we had an antenna on the roof of the theater and we had a bank of five radios, each tuned into a different channel. And in front of the audience, we tuned the radios and we tuned into them and then you hear the choir and then we go and we do all the other p- movements and then we come back and we finish the piece by tuning back into the closing. So we in the theater only used about f- 10 to 15 minutes of that composition, but you have to buy an hour of airtime on radio. So it was a full hour composition, but the audience only heard or the audience in the theater only heard about 10 to 15 minutes Mean And I thought, well, maybe someone will stumble onto this on the airwaves, they'll wonder what it is, because I wasn't on any normal frequencies. But I didn't think, I didn't advertise it, so I didn't think there'd be that many people. And I made QSL cards more as a novelty, you know, like how there's little postcards for theater shows. Mm -hmm. And so I made the QSL cards more for promo. But we did this three nights, and before we were even done the first night, someone in the Netherlands posted a video to YouTube wondering what kind of pirate station this was. Because it was shortwave there,
0: again. So it's going all the across the globe.
2: Oh yeah. And then there was this thread on HF underground, which monitors shortwave pirates and people are like, Hey, I'm, at, at first they think they're hearing the same thing on two different frequencies. And then oh. they, they, they start doing a close listening and comparing. They're like, wait it's slightly different it's synchronized Beautiful. and similar but different and then someone posts i've decoded the morse code it's in latin does anyone speak latin oh my gosh <laughs> you
0: really you really gave them a, a project
2: yeah so the next two nights people around the world were getting out four and five radios to try and tune in so That's unintentionally so cool. yeah i unintentionally reached this much wider international audience of unexpected listeners, which was kind of cool. It was these people were this was not something they expected to get into, and so that so I got quite a few reception reports, and then I sent out the the QSL cards to people in um, Japan, uh, all over Europe, South America, uh, yeah, all over. People wow. had tuned in and heard different things. That's
1: so, so that so I have a nerd, a real nerd question. You know, we talked to Thomas Witherspoon about shortwave defined radios. So did people record, were there people that made a recording of the Spectrum um, Hmm. during that whole broadcast? Because he explained to us how you could make a Spectrum recording and actually go back to it later, like you're flipping a dial and hear everything that was on the radio.
2: Um, yeah, no one sent me spectrum recordings. Someone probably did, but a lot of people with uh, uh, software-defined radios did record um, what they were receiving. So with the reception reports, what I did get, I got people sending me audio recordings, sometimes of just one channel. Sometimes they recorded all five and then mixed them together. <sighs> no, all four. No one got all five, but other people sent me like their mixes of all four. Uh, I got... Video recordings of their screen of the software-defined radio. I got photos of their radio setups. One guy, one of them, s- some of them were very technical. They just list facts like the frequency, the type of radio, the type of antenna, what they heard. Very technical. Yeah. Others were very poetic. One guy sent me a picture of a, a the beach of a lake, and it just he described where he was sitting. Uh, I think it was Great Slave Lake. He was like, I'm sitting on a a piece of driftwood with an antenna. strung out to some scrubby bushes and the wind he described the wind and the smell and his whole experience and sent me a picture of the beach where he listened and then a picture of the planet earth with a little red line drawn from miami to great slave lake where he was listening so i could see (laughs) so it was and then other people were like i don't know much about sound art but here's what i heard and then you get this like 1500 word description which i gave to lucas uh, the composer And he's like you never get this kind of musical analysis like from someone who doesn't have a background in contemporary music and sound art giving you their full attention and and writing a a description of it it was amazing
1: that's and it's a great cross-section of the shortwave community you know finding your work and and clearly you found out that that's a very active engaged community (laughs)
2: Yeah, and it's interesting because it wasn't my intended audience. And then all of a sudden I was like, and, and many of them said, oh, I, I feel like you made this just for me. And I was like, well, I really didn't, but I'm glad that you feel that way. That's great. That's, yeah. So that kind of opened this whole other world to me.
0: Amanda Don Christie, Assistant Professor of Studio Arts at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. You're telling us about this piece, Requiem, Requiem for Radio, right? That's what it's called? Yeah. And I just, yeah. it's so exciting to hear as an artist, like you had, I'm sure a set of intentions. Like I, I was gonna ask five minutes ago about like, well, did you think of this piece as as installation, as theater or as music? Cause it sounds like all of them. And then to find out that that not only did you have an audience in the theater, but you had an audience around the world because it was broadcast on shortwave um, as part of the piece. Uh, I just, I'm wondering uh, if you could take us back again to. To, I guess, to your intentions as an artist to create the piece and then uh, filter that through what an amazing amount of feedback you got from across the globe about the piece.
2: Yeah. So in terms of, I mean, the intention was always for it to have, um, be interdisciplinary. So it it's made, and it's also kind of like, because it's such a, it's so elaborate for the theater piece uh, to set up that for instance uh, pulse decay the piece with a the theremin i've performed that quite a bit because it's just it's solo it's me and a theremin and some a few little boxes and that that works so i can do, i can travel with a suitcase and do a 20 minute solo performance with that whereas the full requiem for radio full quiet flutter it's a black box theater it's a full week to set up it's it's intense um, but after the theater performance uh, the installation the scale model of the tower stays up when we did it it stayed up for two weeks open to the public as a gallery installation so it's like we do the performance for three nights and then for the next week or two people can come and interact with it and play it themselves so there's this element of and so within it then of course there's also music and um, there's also text and writing and um And then, of course, the engagement with the international shortwave audience. I just
0: I really like this because you you were describing earlier in today's program of Radio Survivor, just the amount of time you spent alone contemplating these structures and the history that was behind them and how they were used to broadcast shortwave radio. And also you spent so much time on the landscape, on the earth alone, you know, under the sky with these towers um, and then made these recordings and to have all of that um, alone time transformed into a piece of art that other people can share without having to (laughs) camp out by the towers before they're torn down right but but still being able to have sort of the same experience that you had um, it's very nice that you made this this kind of art and um, and we're excited about it on radio survivor because it um, it it it, it's so it put to use transmission arts um, in such a strong way and that's why that's why I know Jennifer uh, was excited to talk to you today
1: Huh. Thanks. Yeah, and I and I think maybe now's a good time to talk about your most recent project. Uh, just a few weeks ago, you were in Alaska doing an intriguing transmission art piece that we mentioned earlier: "Ghosts in the Airglow."
0: Ghosts in the airglow.
1: Ghosts in the airglow. So which you're not trying. Seems like to, the perfect descendant. Yeah, you're of You're not everything.
0: worried about about uh, about too much woo in your in your titles anymore.
2: I wasn't, but I, I maybe I should be now. But yeah, <laughs> I'm still on the fence with that. Um, Ghosts in the Airglow resulted from, uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, so with the Requiem for Radio, uh, I was surprised. All of a sudden with the shortwave community, um, I made all these contacts. And they invited me to be a keynote speaker at the um shortwave listening festival in pennsylvania so i went there so it's like it's one of these things where one thing leads to the other leads to the other in my art practice yeah so i try to just remain open and go where things take me and so it took me there and little did i realize that there is a strong connection between the shortwave and the hacking community so there were some hackers there not in the negative sense but like the positive sense of um hacking and like um yeah, I mean the original sense of the the term hacker. I use it, am I like it was always very positive. So it's a shame that there's that darker side. Anyway, so I met yeah, these really people unla- who
0: people who use their skills at computers to make uh, to make the internet dance, to do fun things, uh, to connect people, and and to use these tools to sort of gain new new powers and make things. It's really why the internet exists at all. Is, is people were hacking. When, when, yeah. for fun, and now, yeah, now there's all these other to tools a,
1: to make a radio out of a sink, right? Exactly, That's hacking, yeah. So, I've, so I've discovered,
2: yeah, because hacking is not just on the computer, right? It's there's biohacking, there's like you know, mechanical computer social engineering, all these various manifestations of it. Um, it's like using your skills to make things work and make them work better and more efficient, and, and so. Anyway, I met these really amazing people at the Shortwave Festival who um, were involved in the hacking community. And so through that, I was invited to teach a workshop and perform at the Circle of Hope this summer in New York. And the Circle of Hope is Hackers on Planet Earth. And so when I was there, and I was like, I'm not a hacker. And they're like, you made a radio out of the sink. Of course you are. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, when I was at the Circle of Hope, um, There was a presentation by Dr. Chris Fallin, who is the chief scientist at a place called HARP in Alaska, the High Frequency Active Auroral Research Program, and I was just amazed at this site. It's 180 radio transmitters, uh, antennas uh, on a matrix uh, spread out in a matrix on 33 acres of land, and they transmit high-frequency radio waves straight up. Uh, to activate the ionosphere to study how different natural ionospheric conditions affect radio communications with satellites. And so much of communication relies on the ionosphere. Whether you're talking about surveillance with the military or just standard, you know, uh, cell phone service, um, GPS, all these things uh, are affected by the ionosphere. And so what they do is they recreate natural conditions um, in order to study them under controlled circumstances. And uh, one of the things they do is they generate air glow. And airglow is artificial aurora, or they try to, it's very difficult, it often doesn't work. Um, they need just the right conditions to activate a very small portion of the ionosphere, very, very small portion of the ionosphere to create this artificial glowing, it's a little glowing spot, you can't see with the human eye, you need telescopes, it's very, like they they can't create the same effects on the ionosphere that the sun does, like it's just very minimal what they're doing, but they have very precise scientific instruments on the ground to monitor it. Um, So he's talking about that, and in his presentation, he, uh, and I'm just thinking, wow, this is amazing, and he talks about the fact that there's a lot of conspiracy theories about the site, a lot of people believe that Harp causes hurricanes, earthquakes, forest fires, which is ironic because if it's cloudy, it ruins their experiments. Like they can't run if it's cloudy or if it's too cold. Like their experiments depend on the weather, so it's a little bit absurd when people think that they're controlling the weather. Yeah, it's not is, to say
0: this is one of those conspiracy theories that um, I became familiar with in the '90s prior to the internet existing. Um, I, you know, someone, someone that I went to college with had a book about harp and so the first time i ever heard about the project it was in this um sort of uh, the the u.s military is trying to control the weather uh for nefarious ends uh which yeah. which is which is a, a message that probably a lot of people have received about the about the the facility uh prior to um you know the more the more fact-based wikipedia article version of what's yeah. going on there
2: yeah and the thing is that I mean, no doubt, there are definitely places around the world doing weather weapon research, but Harp is not one of them. So it's oh. ironic that all of the energy, everyone, all the theories are directed towards Harp, when you're like, you know, the fact that you're looking at Harp means you're probably not looking at the right place. You know, well, like, that
0: that's no, that's that's, that's one theory about conspiracy theories is that they're out there to misdirect away from the real conspiracies. You know, you have a you exactly. have a story that's very compelling. That misdirects you from the story that's uh, that's right in front of your face. But anyway, this is not an episode about conspiracy yeah. theories, despite the fact that Radio Survivor yeah. has uh, dug into the work. Um, we've talked to, with Matthew Lazar in the past. A great episode about um, how community radio used to be one of the um, you know one of the places where conspiracy theories would blossom. Uh, we, there's a lot of shows in the past in the history of community radio that were that played an instrumental role in developing. Some uh, some conspiracies prior to the internet. It's all on the internet now. But yeah, um, tell us more about the project that you that you started working on, Amanda Don Christie, um, with with Transmission yeah. Arts at the Harp facility.
2: So the um, so yeah, so Chris did this presentation about what Harp does and what it's used for, and and he he talked about the that there were these you know conspiracy theories about weather control so that it controls the weather and then also that people believe that it's responsible for Gulf War syndrome uh, chronic fatigue headaches etc and uh, so he's he's basically talking about those and he talks about that book that you mentioned uh, angels don't play this harp and and part of the goal is basically that that site was managed by the United United States Air Force uh, and DARPA and the University of Alaska Fairbanks until 2014 and then they pulled out and it was kind of mothballed for two years and then the University of Alaska took it over uh, in 2016 and so since then they're really working on being more transparent because part of the reason these conspiracy theories come up is uh, when people don't know what's happening there's there is a natural impulse to create a narrative to try and understand it. So the University of Alaska is trying to be much more transparent. So Chris is doing these talks, and he brings up the conspiracy theories, and then addresses each one about what Harp actually does, why it's not capable of doing those things, and and in the midst of that, he's he's also an amateur radio operator, and and he says he's a physicist, but he also has his ham license, and he says, well, I realize you know this is essentially a giant radio transmitter, so instead of because normally they don't transmit content, like audio or anything. Mm-hmm. But he did, he did some experiment, and in the past, some people have transmitted a few songs, like, uh, you know, bits of music. Um, so he did, uh, he played at the conference uh, an excerpt of a Luxembourg experiment he did, which is a phenomenon called cross-modulation, which hasn't been studied much. They discovered it in 1934, hasn't been studied too much. It's normally radio waves ricochet, they bounce off the ionosphere. Luxembourg effect is when you penetrate into the ionosphere, but you don't go out the other side into outer space. You mix together and then come back down. So you have two frequencies go up, they mix in the ionosphere, and they come down on the same frequency. Oh wow! So they're coming wow. from different
0: antennas. Is that the idea, or are they?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. So different So you could transmit up on three point eight or two point eight megahertz and three point two megahertz, and and then on the ground, if your radio is tuned to two point eight, you'll hear both sounds. One will be louder than the other, Mm -hmm. but they're going to come down together. And so, yeah. The Luxembourg effect. Yeah, or cross-modulation. Cross-modulation. So Chris had done this with uh, DTMF tones, so like dial tones on a phone, and played these. And then he also transmitted an SSTV image, uh, slow scan television, where you take an image, you convert it to audio. It sounds like a fax machine. Mm -hmm. And then when someone receives it, Software of the computer decodes it to an image, and it's just like 90s internet when you watch an image appear line by line. So yeah, so Chris had transmitted some SSTV images just to see, because one of the things they haven't tested with HARP is propagation. How far can people receive the signals? Because it's not meant to be a radio transmitter. It's using radio waves to study the ionosphere. But no one's really done a lot of scientific studies. So what Chris did is he embedded into his own airglow experiments some audio and some image just out of curiosity to see. And he monitored where people received stuff. And he sent a uh an image of the university logo, uh QR code to a Bitcoin account with enough money for a cup of coffee. Uh no one got the image clear enough to claim the money for the coffee. And a Jeez. Cat <laughs> <Yeah>. what a <laughs> yeah.
0: that's a wonderful we you know this comes up a lot in transmission arts. I know uh, I don't know if that sparks anything for you, Jennifer Waits, but like We've heard people put clues into the into the airwaves before to, to create um, you know radio scavenger hunts. So that's this is a new oh, one. Yeah. The, yeah. The definitely. idea of putting a QR code for a cup of yeah. coffee's worth of Bitcoin into the into the airwaves.
2: And then he also sent up a cat picture. Sure. It was his cat. Yeah. So I thought, you know, this is really cool. This is this is interesting. Um, but I, I just had the urge to do something maybe a bit more poetic than a, a cat picture. Um, and, and the cat picture was great. But I wanted to do something more. And in his talk, he's like, Oh, yeah, if anyone wants to transmit from anything from harp, just let me know. It's only $5,000 an hour. Ha ha ha. You know, like as if no one, you know, because no one's gonna pay that much but I'm pretty good at writing grant applications. And I felt, you know, I've got 10 years of, uh, I was like, I have 10 years of transmission art behind me. I just finished this massive international piece. Why not? So I approached him afterwards and I said, Hey, uh, I, I want to do this. I'm an artist and I want to buy time. And he was, I think he thought I was maybe a bit nutty. I don't think he knew what to make of me. And a couple weeks later, I get a, an email saying, Oh, I looked at your website. I've seen your work. Yeah. Yeah. We could do something. So we started talking and I applied for funding and I got the funding. And so then I was like, all right, let's do this. Let's see what can I do with Harp that I can't do with any other radio transmitter. So I worked on learning what can this site do and learning a bit about the history of it and a bit about uh, the public perception of it, the conspiracy theories. And I wanted to make something where the content really related to the actual site itself Mm. and also used the capabilities of the site.
0: Yeah. So, what did so, you what did you make?
2: What should I make? So, uh, the piece is called Ghosts in the Airglow. It's in ten movements, um, and the ten movements are in eight experiments because movements one, two, and three are the same experiment. It begins with uh, like a prelude. So, I trans uh, an airglow experiment uh, where I transmit one frequency straight up on magnetic zenith. I do, uh, there's some a haunting music in the background and the haunting music is a, a duet of pulse decay. So that theremin piece and saxophone with my friend, Genevieve, uh, that's time stretched out. So you have this haunting music in the background and my voice doing a territorial acknowledgement of the indigenous communities that lived on the land first mm. and talking a bit about the, um, the concept of mind and matter and air glow and the Aurora and energy. Um referencing political territories and boundaries in the way that radio returns to Earth, um, regardless of political territories and boundaries and nation states.
0: Right, which harkens back to earlier in our conversation today on Radio Survivor, where shortwave was used to, to break boundaries in the, during the Cold War and broadcast messages um, into repressive governments. so you know people could hear yeah. anything.
1: And Amanda, yeah. just just to clarify, you're, you're doing this as a live broadcast. Uh, no, so the, all of all the files had
2: to be prepared in advance because okay. it's a very complex instrument to operate. So everything was pre-recorded, but there was a lot of work to get things. And then in, in real time, what was happening was like there were some changing frequencies each day, but no, everything was extremely intensely pre-planned and pre-prepared. Um, yeah, and there was some Morse code poetry. So I wrote some poetry in Morse code. Nice. Uh, yeah, and that talked a bit about uh, the ghost. And the ghost, I was connecting with the concept of stochastic ghost resonances, which is uh, another term for missing fundamentals. So my friend Genevieve, who I've collaborated with on Requiem for Radio and a few other things, she's doing her doctorate in saxophone and focusing on missing fundamentals, which is when you hear two uh, notes, a certain intervals apart at the upper edge of human hearing, you hear a third note, the undertone, or the, um, if you hear the two overtones, you'll hear the fundamental. Right. And some, some scientists say it's generated, generated in the brain cognitively, whereas others say it's generated by resonances in the cochlea. So that's Inside what she's looking ear. at. Huh. Yeah. So either in your ear or in your brain, depending on who you ask.
0: Yeah. And it's, this is a form of uh, harmony that you, that you can hear. Yeah, and the, yeah, sax- yeah, saxophone is a particularly interesting instrument because um, I don't think a lot of people think of it that way, but its greatest players uh, will play with those notes. They'll, they'll use yeah. their reed to get more than one note out of it, even though uh, most people don't think about saxophones as being a chord, an instrument that can play Yeah.
2: Chords. Yeah, so she could get two notes out of it, but this is not about the notes coming out of the saxophone. This is about the notes being generated inside the listener's body. Yeah. So it's like she can, she plays like two notes that are very precise intervals apart from each other, and they're the harmonies. So you're not, and then inside your head is generated the actual fundamental. So third, the note, the chord, the, yeah. So, but the main one, not, you're not generating the harmony, you're generating the actual fundamental. So if you have those two harmonics played very high pitched at the edge of human hearing, then inside the head, it generates the, um, I say inside the head, because some people say the brain, some say the ear. So I, I won't pass judgment because that's not my area of expertise. Yeah.
0: How amazing. And then and, and that's uh, also known as a ghost note. Is that true?
2: So it's called, it's, uh, there's, it's called one, one of three things, missing fundamental missing. or, or a phantom frequency. So you get the word phantom in there, phantom frequency. So, or a stochastic ghost resonance. So I just loved those names. So the Morse code poetry in, in the prelude is all about um, uh, this idea of the ghost is the distance between, the difference between what you think and what you say. It's the difference between the photograph of your loved one and the, the memory of your loved one and the photograph you took of them when you were young. And then I talk in the, in the Morse code poetry about the missing fundamental. And I say, I'm going to send you a phantom frequency uh, if you hear both overtones, you your uh, the missing fundamental will be generated inside your head. This is your ghost frequ- This is your ghost. I'm going to send you two frequencies. I'm going to send you two frequencies on two frequencies. So it's like I'm giving them a heads up. That I'm about to do this, and so then the next movement is on two different frequencies. And it's I rec- Genevieve came over and recorded some saxophone. One frequency is just a, a slow drone, like a single note. And the other one, she's improvising a melody that goes in and out of the missing fundamental area. So it was a Luxembourg experiment. So the idea was, if you if the cross modulation and Luxembourg effect was present, when you tuned in, your radio would play the two notes, and the third one would be generated in your head, if it worked.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting way that you, that you link those two. Uh those two things together uh with what's happening you know with a saxophone playing notes and then with what's happening at the harp site it's yeah pretty brilliant it's
0: very evocative to me of just the whole idea of of radio but any form of communication at all any artwork where any any ideas get get written down or transmitted over the airwaves even a podcast where you know the ideas are in our heads and we're communicating them into microphones but when they hit the ears of the listeners and go into their minds, either into their ears or into their heads, it's a, it's a third note that what, you know, whatever our audience makes of all of this work is really, is really the work itself, at least for each individual that hears it. It's very, it's a very beautiful idea.
2: Oh, thanks. Well, and then, yeah. So the next movement was also a cross modulation one and it was recordings of Arctic wolves and I pitch shifted the wolves howling into wolf fifths, which is a dissonant fifth. (laughs) Uh, But I thought it was a nice pun. And so that one's called wolves chasing the ghost. And the idea is what if cross modulation doesn't work? What if you don't hear the ghost note? And they're like, oh, it's because the wolves ate the ghost. So this was just a playful idea in my head that there were a bunch of Arctic wolves that chased down the ghost and ate it. Um, And so that piece starts with just wolves howling normally And then all of a sudden, when I I kind of auto-tuned them and they start to, oh my gosh, they sound like Cher. It's kind of funny, it makes me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) So then they start to sing in this kind of um, dissonant way and then they go back to sounding normal.
0: Our thanks again to Amanda John-Christie who just described their latest project. For show notes and links to everything uh, that you heard today on the radio program, you can go to our website, radiosurvivor.com. My name is Eric Klein. On behalf of Jennifer Waits, thank you so much for listening.